Today's Heat Check is brought to you by Yahoo Daily Fantasy. Yahoo Daily Fantasy is starting the year off hot. Every day they're running a $100,000 fantasy basketball contest and that has zero management fee. That means Yahoo is making nothing on this contest. Fewer players equals better odds for you. More than one in five people who play will double their money. Not a bad way to kick off the new year. There's a limit of 10 entries per person, so don't miss these contests. Go to yahoo.com slash daily fantasy. Use promo code yahoo25 when you make your first deposit for $25 in free play. And now, heat check. Welcome to Heat Check. I'm your host, John Gonzalez. Joined once again, he's back from the road. It's my producer, Isaac Lee. What's up, Isaac? It's good to be back, man. Uh, I was in Seattle last week, and when I arrived in Los Angeles, beautiful, sunny Los... Oh, wait, it's raining here. It's ra- What's going on, Gons? I'm freaking out. <laughs> Driving in the rain is extremely weird and foreign to me. <laughs> yeah, I love Los Angeles. I've lived here for, uh, it'll be three years this summer, and it still amuses me when it rains because everybody loses <sighs> their shit. I will say in your defense, though, that because it never rains here, one of the things that uh, I always have to remind myself is how to turn on the windshield wipers in my car <laughs> because it happens so infrequently that yeah. I like I'm just like oh shit yeah how do I do it in this car is it upwards downwards right right what's how's going it so, but like meanwhile like everything you've ever heard about Los Angeles is one thousand percent true as it pertains <laughs> to rain here people just it's end of days people just like abandon their cars and put them up on blocks. Fires break out. It's, it's all kinds of crazy <laughs> shit. But you made it. You made it into the office. You made it I back did. from Seattle. I'm very excited to have you back. You went and saw the Clippers and Blake, which we'll get into later on in the program. You took over the Ringer NBA Twitter feed. Yeah, it that was, was exciting. It was, was exciting. You did a great job. So we'll get into that a little bit later in the program. Want to remind you uh, first, thanks for listening. Please rate and review us and all of our fantastic Ringer NBA shows and pods if you would be so inclined and so kind. And uh, also want to remind you, we have lots of great content on the ringer.com. KOC has a piece, Finding New Roles for the NBA's Most Misused Talents. DJ Foster has a story about why Nikola Vucevic could be someone to watch at the trade deadline. We have a staff piece up there about the NBA trade deadline tracker. And this has nothing to do with basketball. I don't care. I'm throwing it out there because it's good content. The Flat Circle, the premiere of our post-game True Detective show with Chris Ryan and Jason Concepcion, two dudes we love, multi-talented. You want to check that out. Later on in the show, the Yellow King himself, Dan Devine, will be here (laughs) to discuss the Knicks. And for the first time ever, Zach Cram will be here. He had a killer piece where he devised this formula to come up with the top five comps for every player from the 2018 lottery. Some very interesting and unexpected names were assigned to some of those lottery picks. So we're going to break that down with him. But first, as I mentioned, Blake Griffin played his first game against the Clippers since being traded. Isaac was there. And also Kyrie had some, uh, shall we say, interesting things to Mm. say to his teammates. Madness ensued. And for that, we need our senior madness correspondent. All right, joining me on the other line from House of Carbs and from Shaq House, he took a snow day. It's snowing a lot in the DMV. It's uh, Joe House. What up? Yeah, Wangan. How you doing, baby? Now, look, no rest for the weary. It's a snow day. It's January here in Washington, D.C., but I encourage all of the heat check listeners. I took the advantage of, of having a little bit of time to myself. I have some, some golf clubs that need some swings. I'm out there in the snow <laughs> at house from DC on the gram long gone, getting the swing because you know, 
Hashtag dedication, Wangan. Yeah, hashtag brand. You got the whole thing going on. I'm glad that you took a snow day because it gives us more time to talk. It's raining here in LA. It's snowing there. It's a perfect time for us to uh, chop up a little basketball talk because some spicy stuff happened over the weekend. Blake Griffin made his triumphant return to Los Angeles to play his former team, the Clippers. One Isaac Lee, before we even get into the madness of Blake Griffin and how hilarious the pregame stuff was, House, Isaac Lee took over the Ringer NBA Twitter feed. Did you see this? Not only did I see it, I, I enjoyed it greatly. It seemed like, maybe Ice can chime in here, Ice, it seemed like you were a little conflicted, my brother. Uh, conflicted is one word for it. There was a lot of mixed emotions going on. Generally speaking, the Clippers crowd was hesitant to I guess, root against Blake because Blake, we're so used to seeing him in a Clippers jersey. It's interesting because like, yeah, on the one hand, you think, okay, he's he was like their guy of that era, somebody who helped resurrect a dead franchise. On the other hand, the general thing here, given how acrimonious the split was, I'm surprised there wasn't more booing. Like, I, I wonder about Clippers fans sometimes and whether or not they know the appropriate emotion. Well, that's just funny coming from a Philly guy. That's what I mean. Where is the player loyalty he didn't do anything wrong. He yeah. signed the, the long-term contract. Yeah. They told him Clipper for life. He went and got that <laughs> tattoo on his rear end. I know. I've seen his butt. Yeah. And he was he's ready to, to do it to it. And next thing you know, he's by a snow boot. So he gets shipped out to Detroit. So let's get into that. He comes back with the Pistons. The Pistons win 109-104 over the Clippers. Blake has 44. But before the game even begins, it was really funny. So he's warming up. He's going through his whole routine. And if you haven't seen this, I highly encourage all of the Heat Check listeners to go out and seek out this video because it is golden. And I want to I watch it on loop. I want it to be like a house. I want it to be like a clockwork orange where they pin open my eyelids. And I only watch this for the rest of my life because it was really great. So Steve Ballmer is off to the side watching Blake warm up. And as Blake finishes his routine, Balmer kind of goes over to him. He's standing on the sideline. Balmer goes over to him with his hand extended and Blake immediately picks up speed and sprints in into the locker room. And Balmer like just looks around because he got left hanging and somebody sees Balmer standing there and Balmer sort of shrugs. And uh, that was it. They did not exchange pleasantries pregame. Postgame, Blake Griffin said, nice to get the game over with. There was so much hype. It's over. I'm moving on and they're moving on. And then he said, for nine years now, because he was asked specifically about sort of snubbing Balmer. He said, for nine years now, as soon as I'm done doing my pregame shooting, I make sure there's a path and I take off running to the locker room and I don't stop running. I don't change that for anybody. That's what it was. Plain and simple. It wasn't anything planned. House, where's your bullshit detector on this? Do you believe him? I'm going to give you a three-part answer. Please. The first part to this, I feel very fortunate in my life. I don't really have any enemies. I don't really have any, any true acrimony with anybody. But if I did, on a daily basis, what I would be sending that enemy of mine is this loop. You, you said it right, yeah. Juan God. This is how I feel about you, enemy of mine. But I, I, I will say that I think it is hilarious. And, and just to emphasize the point, Blake got a little faulty with the crew. He said he could use a curse word, in fact, and, and whoever it is that put it up on, on Twitter or put it on Instagram first, he said, you know, that's BS that, that you guys know me, you know, this is my routine and somebody's going to take a clip of that and put it up there, uh, suggesting that, that, um, you know, there was some media manufactured tomfoolery. How about this one gone? Let me put this to you. Mm -hmm. If indeed it is the case that this is, 
Blake's unabiding and relentless and uninterrupted approach to beginning the basketball game. Do you think that Steve Ballmer, the owner of the Clippers, for more than one basketball game, he was the owner of the Clippers <laughs> for a good chunk. A couple of games. Of Blake Griffin's, yeah, some, a meaningful number of games. Right. He owned the team. Do you think that he would be familiar with this routine, Wangan? Yeah, you'd think. I, you know, I think both things can be true here. Before I give you my answer on what I believe this to be, Isaac, what did you make of it? Because I have a lot of thoughts here, aside from the fact that I thought it was hilarious. Well, first of all, shouts to Jovan Buha, mm-hmm. uh, the athletic friend of the ringer who reported this first. Former Grantland intern, I believe, so yes. connections there. But what I thought of it was, you know, this is actually what Blake did or does as his routine, but it's 100% a snub. Like, there's no doubt. Yes. So here's what I'm saying about, like, it was funny, and this might be his routine, but all of these things could also be true, that in addition to the fact that this might be his routine, that it was also, as Isaac just pointed out, a snub, because as we learned, before the game even went down, before this practice, or I mean, before the shoot-around, where uh, Blake is warming up and getting ready, and Balmer's got his hand extended, before all that happened, the great Kevin Arnovitz from ESPN wrote a long piece about Blake Griffin, which outlined how the trade went down and how pissed off Blake Griffin was and probably rightly so because they did put him through that whole like museum thing where they brought him in and they're like you're going to be a clipper for life and they had all this memorabilia yeah. and so it was let me interrupt you please let me interrupt please you interrupt yeah why why should the clippers fans have booed Blake Griffin yeah, you're right. You're, there's probably no good reason to do it other than the, okay, other good, than good. to just Thank do you. it. But I mean, like he definitely uh, thought. I'm sorry that he, for interrupting. No, no, you're you're always welcome to interrupt. We enjoy the interruptions here in this in the asides. <laughs> I think like if you're the Clippers and you go through that whole thing, it's 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 hilarious that you then ship him off to you know basketball Siberia in Detroit. But as we learned in that Kevin Arnovitz story, since that trade, first he didn't take the phone call from Lawrence Frank when the trade went down. And then since that trade, he hadn't talked to any of the team's principals, not Balmer, not Lawrence Frank, not Doc Rivers, none of those guys. So the idea that all of a sudden, like he saw Steve Ballmer with his hand out and, you know, that was just part of his routine and nothing more. Of course it was. This is a continuation of I'm pissed off. You traded me to Detroit. Uh, I'm not going to shake your hand. I'm going to sprint into the locker room and, you know, fuck off. And I'm okay with that. Like you said, if you went and you signed that big contract, and then you get traded, you'd be like, no, nah, I don't want to talk to that person. Yeah, look, let's just be honest about this. It was the snubbiest snub. I mean, that is some A-plus-plus pettiness right there. Yeah. That is Blake <laughs> having a rare, the universe delivered that beautiful moment to him of Balmer. I guess Balmer's take is it wasn't personal, it's just business. I mean, I, I haven't, I'm not part of Clipper Nation, so I didn't do the deep dive on the team side of things. But, you know, I mean, it, it, the universe delivered it up on a silver platter and Blake pooped right on that platter, as he should have, as far as I'm personally concerned. Yeah, and as Doc said afterwards, like, most trades don't go very well. That's not surprising. I mean, he he obviously thought he was going to be in Los Angeles, and then, you know, six months later, he gets shipped out. So that brings me to, you know, now that we have a little distance from this, and, I, and I'm interested to get Isaac's take on this as well. So they they sign him in 2017 in the summer to a max contract. They tell him he's going to be a Clipper for life. They go through this whole thing. Six months later, he gets traded for Tobias Harris, Avery Bradley, Boban, and a 2018 first that was used in that swap, along with some seconds with Charlotte to get SGA. Here's my question. Who won the trade? So it really pains me to say this because when this trade actually first went down, I was devastated. And also, Haley O'Shaughnessy, if you're listening, please cover your ears because I don't want to affirm that you are right. But <laughs> the Clippers kind of won the trade. 
So now with a little bit of perspective, you think they made the right move? Yeah. So, I mean, I had tweeted this earlier. Now this is no longer true, but since the end of Lob City this year, they had a better record than the Houston Rockets, which is Chris Paul's team, now no longer, and the Detroit Pistons, which is Blake Griffin's team, and the Dallas Mavericks, which is DeAndre Jordan's team. The Clippers are actually performing better in the regular season. Of course, they won't go too far in the playoffs, but they are performing better in the regular season without the Lob City trio. So... Yeah, I think they won the trade and they have a they have a pretty bright future with all the cap space they have this summer with SGA, with Lou Williams on a pretty team-friendly deal. Like this is a really good roster, a really good situation. I mean, trust Jerry West, he's literally the logo. It pains me to say this because I love Blake and Blake is my guy, but I think the Clippers won the deal. House? Yeah, so I'm glad you invoked Jerry West Ice because that's where this all begins and ends. It was a brilliant move for the Clippers. And it, it is kind of shocking to the system to see a team do what the Clippers did, but they quickly reached the conclusion that they made a mistake with that contract that they offered to Blake. They are, in that respect, the anti-wizards. Yeah. <laughs> they took recognition and cognition of what they bought themselves and immediately found a way to work themselves out of that cap space hell. And it's a nice happenstance that it's a very likable team. Like the combination of Doc and and Patrick Beverly and Lou Williams kind of setting the tone. They really created a culture there for the young guys, for, for Tobias, who's not that young necessarily in terms of years in the league, but still early in his career. And this is the first time that he's ever been in a situation where there's a kind of a discipline and a rigor and expectation that's put upon him by, by like veterans who can really have an impact on his career. And Shay, what do we call them, Ice? What, Shea what, Gildas Alexander, initial? SGA. No, I know that part, but we just call him SGA because I can't get all that other part back. <laughs> uh, what, a, what a great situation for him to arrive in, right? Yeah. They have, for all the things that Ice mentioned, in terms of the road in front of them, the most important thing in, in this version of the NBA, if you are a franchise like the Clippers, the most important asset is flexibility, and they have it in space. Yeah, I think if you're just looking uh, at the way these teams have performed as well this year, I mean, the Clippers are smack dab in the middle of the Western Conference playoff picture. They've been in this hunt the whole season. We've talked about how they don't, their top line talent, If you know, Tobias Harris is their best player, but they're just, they're just good across the board. They're a professional basketball team. And I think like trade-wise, you know, we're all in agreement here. I mean, Tobias Harris plus SGA plus cap flexibility equals you win because that Blake Griffin contract, I love Blake when he's healthy. I don't love Blake at the number that they're paying him. And I think that it's going to be difficult for Detroit to fix that. I really like Detroit's new management group. I'm a big fan of Ed Stefanski and uh, Malik Rose and that whole group. They're good dudes. They're smart dudes. And I think that they'll try to figure it out in, in Detroit. But I also think what happened before they came in made it more difficult. And so does that number that they're paying Blake Griffin. So yeah, if I had a pick, I'd rather be the Clippers right now than, than the Pistons. So good for the Clippers. Steve Ballmer didn't get a handshake, but they won the deal. All right, I want to go to, I want to, go to Boston because... Because this is something, House, we've never done this on Heat Check before. We're going to talk about the Celtics. It's never happened. It's never happened on Heat Check. The Rigor NBA show has never talked about the Celtics. It's first time for everything. Kyrie Irving, not very happy. All of a sudden, things in Boston, people are wondering what's going on up there. The Boston Celtics are currently in fifth place, House. 
In the Eastern Conference, they trailed the Raptors, Bucks, Pacers, and Philadelphia 76ers. They've lost two in a row, including this weekend house. They go and play the Magic, and they lose by two. The Magic were on a four-game losing streak. The Magic end up beating the Celtics, and Kyrie was really pissed afterwards. And uh, he said, it doesn't matter who you're going against. It matters the type of preparation that you have, what you're going out and trying to accomplish, what's the big picture, what are we doing here? These are a lot of things that I don't think that some of my teammates have faced every single day. It's not easy to be great. The things that you're doing, that you've done your whole career, of being able to coast by in certain situations and you've gotten away with your youth and stuff like that, being in a championship ball club, you can't get away with that. Holy shit, shots fired from inside the house. Kyrie Irving not happy. So what happened was there was an inbound play pass at the very end of the game. Hayward inbounded it and it looked like they were going to set a screen. Al Horford was going to set a screen for Kyrie or maybe Al would flash and give the ball to Kyrie. It didn't go that way. Instead, they just inbounded it to Tatum who took a fadeaway baseline two, missed it and they lost the game. And after Afterwards, you saw Kyrie with his hands up. He was basically just standing at half court, like with his hands up, incredulous. And then afterwards, he was mouthing uh, Brad Stevens and Gordon Hayward. What do you make of all this? Because he clearly was not excited about the way that not only the game went down, but the way that the Celtics are playing right now. Yeah. So this this is a glorious moment, and, and isn't it just? Wanga, you know me as a as a relatively humble person. Hopefully, I don't, I don't often. Come on here and try and pat myself on the back. I will say. I'll pat you on the back. Do it. Yeah, thank you very much. I was on the Bill Simmons podcast on Thursday, Mm -hmm. and we were going through his NBA uh, All-Star starter ballot. And, you know, anytime we talk NBA, there's got to be some Celtics fault. And I I will tell you, the way the Celtics discussion went, now that we were taped like sort of uh, Thursday afternoon, so it was before they went and had the matchup, with the Heat, and Simmons observed that, in his estimation, the Celtics had just played their very best game against the Pacers. They, they really kicked the Pacers' ass, and that maybe the Celtics had found the rotation. You know, they used the first half of the season to kind of get the chemistry issues sorted out, but Bill Simmons was very bullish on the Celtics in that conversation. I, of course, went right along with it. I mean, who am I to disagree <laughs> With the pod father. Right. But I will tell you, it was one of my all-time happiest moments that immediately after that podcast, the Celtics went out and laid an egg against the Heat. And then not two nights later, they're up against Orlando, a four-game losing streak, Orlando Magic. And they, they kind of gapped the end of gameplay. Kyrie is pissed off. And here we are. What a, what, I mean, what a beautiful turn of events. So happy about that, Wanga. You, and, and just to be clear, I mean, like, despite the fact that, you know, you sound elated and I might even sound elated, we're neutral observers here. I mean, of course, we're not rooting against the Boston Celtics. We just like basketball. But they are struggling. Uh, and I think that this infighting is interesting. On the one hand, I look at them and I go, all right, they're only two games behind the Sixers for that four seed, which would be home court advantage halfway through the season in the Eastern Conference for the playoff picture, right? And they've got the second best net rating in the entire NBA. Only the Milwaukee Bucks are better. They're better than the Warriors, the Thunder, the Pacers, a whole bunch of these teams. And yet, as we mentioned, this chemistry issue thing has like dogged them all year. Now you've got Kyrie, and he said a bunch of other shit too. He said about last year when he got hurt and the young guys like, had their run through the Eastern Conference playoffs. He said, last year, we had nothing to lose. We came into this season with expectations, and it's real. It's tough, and it's hard. The young guys don't know what it takes to be a championship-level team. And then he said, uh, if they think it's hard now, 
What do they think it'll be like when we're trying to get to the finals? Then he said, we can't be comfortable being a fifth seed. I'm not comfortable with it. A whole bunch of these things that he said, I think, are fascinating. I want to know where the lie is. There was a, a conversation in, in Ringer NBA Slack where I guess basically the Celtics contingent and the Ringer was saying like they wish he hadn't said this out loud. As a media company, I'm thrilled he said it out loud because it provides us with a lot of content. But do you think it's helpful within the team dynamic? No, no, it's not helpful. This is the essence of Kyrie, though, as far as I'm concerned. I have long held the belief that whatever he did to engineer his departure from Cleveland was wrongheaded, ill-founded, and not likely to lead to basketball success. Leaving behind, you know, going to the franchise with your under contract for another two and a half years, three years, whatever it was, and telling them, I no longer want to play with the best player in the game. I'm going to uh, affirmatively and actively eliminate the possibility that I'm going to play in the NBA Finals this upcoming season. I think there's something going on there. He might just be a selfish dick, Wangan. <laughs> and, and here's the thing about all of the, the, the observations he had to make about his young teammates. I wonder if he remembers, I looked this up, the date that he jettisoned, he hit eject on, on the Celtics season was April the 5th last year. Did he watch the playoffs? Did he go to any of those games? The Celtics showed an extraordinary level of poise. The reason for the expectations for the Celtics in this upcoming season is because all those young guys play well beyond their years. I mean, all that happened is they got into a Game 7 against LeBron, the greatest player of this generation and possibly the history of the NBA, and, and lost a, a Game 7 because that pressure got to them finally. But, I, you know, I, this stuff about these guys don't know what it takes, they had 55 wins last year. Kyrie only played in 60 games. I mean, I, I'm not sure exactly what, what point it is that, that Kyrie's making. I will say this. I, I would, let, me, let me ask you this question. What would you put the odds at uh, Kyrie Irving playing in a Celtics jersey in the 2019-2020 season? So this was going to be my next question. This is great. It's almost like you've been on this podcast a bunch and you can read my mind. Previously, <laughs> he had said, right? He said, oh, you know, I'm putting this all to bed. I want, I'm going to stay with the Celtics. I want to be with the Celtics. He says all these, all this stuff, and all of a sudden, like the doors open again, right? I mean, I don't percentage wise, I don't know one in five maybe that he that he walks. But every time he says something like this and he gets frustrated, it makes people wonder. And, and I'll tell you what, in New York, they're already talking about it on sports talk radio. They're already writing columns about it. I mean, this, this is exactly the kind of Fisher that they were hoping for. Just enough of a crack for them to think, eh, maybe he slips out of there. Maybe he doesn't want to. Like he wants his own team. Maybe the Celtics isn't the best spot for him. It brought me great joy to see that the New York Post had something up immediately of course. about, you know, this This is exactly the opportunity that the Knicks need. But I think it's funny. You said one in five. That's only a 20% chance that you think he leaves. I, I think it's much closer to like 50-50 and maybe really? even something against him being on the team. Yeah, because at the end of the day, they still have a couple more years of, of rookie contract. Like all that cash flexibility it comes from young guys exceeding the expectation of, of what you know young guys are capable of. That's where real value uh, is generated in the NBA. And you know, I do think it's the case that the Celtics 
did indeed sort of find a rotation that was going to work, and they may yet put these couple games in their rearview mirror and rip off, you know, 15 wins or so. Because I do think there's something to them having experimented through the first half of the season, and and you know, uh, Hayward's getting a little more comfortable. Like there's still uh, a high upside to the Celtics. Oh, for sure, team, they're so deep. But the window is closing on the time in which the Celtics could could trade Kyrie. But I honestly thought at the beginning of the season that him saying that he would commit to the Celtics was like exactly the right thing for him to say. But I think that the Celtics ought to have, and, and maybe there's still a possibility, we're still a couple, three weeks away from the trade deadline, two and a half weeks away, that they'll consider getting a young asset if they reach the conclusion that they don't need a long-term investment in, in Kyrie Irving. That This little attitude moment here, I, I think, is, is telling, but it's really reflective of, of sort of what his engine is all about, as far as I'm concerned. The whole thing, though, like when I look at each, each of his statements, I go... Where's the lie? He's right. They didn't have anything to lose last year. They did come into this season with expectations. It does take a lot to be a championship level team. They shouldn't be comfortable with being a fifth seed. Maybe he said the quiet part loud and he shouldn't have done that. But for me, like maybe sometimes these young guys like that he's trying to marshal and push forward and he's trying to be a leader. Maybe sometimes you do need to call them out in public and and the behind the closed doors thing that maybe he might have tried previously. Perhaps he wasn't getting the kind of results that he wanted from that. Or maybe it was just frustration boiling over. But I look at each of these statements and I he didn't say anything that didn't seem true to me. And the ironic part of all of it is, you know who he, who he sounded like? He sounded like LeBron. That's something LeBron would say, where he's like, yeah, man, shit, we got a lot of work to do to be a championship-level team. Like, he learned from from one of the greatest of all time, and now he's kind of like, you know, he wanted to get away from him, but now he's kind of being like him. Well, here, here's the crucial difference, though. He ain't LeBron. No, that's like, true. LeBron has a track record of being a leader of men. This is Kyrie's first. Kyrie is getting what he asked for. I want to be with a franchise where I can kind of be the alpha dog, and I can try and, you know, steer the course of things. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm just a little bit underwhelmed. Now, uh, to be fair, he did, if I, if I was going to be generous about it, I give him a lot of credit for creating the environment last season to let all those young guys flourish. You know, Jalen Brown and Terry Rozier and, and Jason Tatum, they all uh, were, were able to, like, definitely play loose, and, and I'll give Kyrie a little bit of credit for creating that that sort of space, creating that headroom, right? But, you know, they, they also deserve some credit for what they did from April the 5th through Game 7 of, of the Eastern Conference Finals. I think they showed a level of poise, a level of professionalism, and, and they showed that they were not going to be cowed by the moment. That, that Sixers series all by itself was a pretty impressive Pretty veteran now. Again, they have Al, Al Horford, and he's kind of a quiet leader. But I just, you know, I, I just wonder about about the fit. It, it can be, as you observed, kind of earlier in this conversation. It, both things could be true. Kyrie can just just now have said a whole bunch of things that are true about the state of the Celtics. And on the other hand, I have my my doubts about whether or not he's a leader of Ben. Look, you can't see me right now because we're doing a podcast. But I'm tenting my fingers like an evil villain because I'm loving this so much. I don't know if it is a one in five chance that he walks. Like I, I forecasted it or a 50% chance like you did or greater, but that there is a chance now and that we're talking about it. You know, again, far be it from us to delight in the misery of the Boston Celtics. We're just saying it's happening. 
<laughs> just happened. I, I'll say this though. 100% chance we have Joe House back on the Heat Check podcast sometime soon. House, stay warm in the snow. Thanks for doing this. Love you, Wonka. And always, I, I always say yes when you call. You're the best. Thanks, buddy. All right, that was Joe House. We love when House comes on the program and we love this next guy too. It's Dan Devine. All right, joining me on the other line, staff writer extraordinaire from New York City, Stan Devine. What's up, homie? Not a whole lot, Gons. How you doing, man? Good. Thanks for doing this. Uh, so as you know, I spent some time with the Knicks when they were on their West Coast road trip. We're going to start with your New York Knicks. Spent some time with them when they were on their West Coast road trip. Their handlers speak very highly of you, by the way. Immediately, they were talking about Dan Devine. Everybody in New York talks about Dan Devine, apparently. It's news to me, but uh, I mean, I guess they'd rather talk well about me than have to talk about what's going on with the Knicks right now. Yes. So that was kind of the crux of my story uh, where I went for years. And you know this better than anybody being uh, a New Yorker and a Knicks fan and a basketball writer for years and years and years. They're stuck in that mediocre middle where they like couldn't figure out like how to get good, but they weren't willing to, for whatever reason, get super bad because they always had this like pipe dream of, hey, you know, we're the Knicks and we play in New York and we're just going to throw a bunch of money at people and they're going to come in and they're going to headline the the garden and they're going to fix us. But that never went down that way. So I think finally, for whatever reason, part of it obviously is Chris Stapp's Porzingis being out this season and we can get into that in a second, whether or not he should continue to be out. But they're bottoming out here. They have 10 wins as we record this. Only the Cleveland Cavaliers have fewer wins with nine wins. They're doing the right thing here, no? Uh, I think so. I mean, it, it, it certainly feels wrong in the moment when you're watching a team lose 19 of 22 games. No, like, no, that's a no, rough hang. No, you got you to gotta lean into this. As a, as a diehard tank enthusiast, somebody who watched a lot of bad <laughs> basketball, you've got to lean into it. The Tony Rotens and the Alexi Schveds of the world are your friends. Well, I will say I mean, two, two of my favorite things, or one of my favorite things that I ever got to write was after Tony Roten's first ever triple-double. And I was like, holy cow, Tony Roten's a player. They got something there. No, they um, don't. And I still, yeah, I, I still believe that could have been the case. But, yeah. um, and, and Shved, you know, who does not love themselves some electric Shved? Of course. Uh, Knicks fans and Sixers fans share that. That's a nice Venn diagram right there. But, uh, yeah, I, I mean, it's absolutely the right thing. I, I wrote about it a little bit earlier this year. I didn't get to, you know, have the sort of in-depth coverage that you did with, with spending time with them. But this is the, they're finally the right kind of bad. Like, yeah. This is the idea. If you're going to be bad, be awful. And if you're going to be awful, be awful with young guys while you sort of try to take the shot at seeing who might wind up being a contributor. Uh, I think the issue that you run into is they've made this sort of determined push on like second draft kind of guys, like taking players who were lottery picks elsewhere or who had flamed out with their first teams and saying, we're going to take sort of a, a shot at you as a distressed asset, see if we can rehabilitate you uh, and make you into a foundational piece. Because clearly there's talent there. There's something to like there. We just got to see if we can bring it back out of you. And, you know, varying levels of success with that. Certainly uh, some positive stuff with Emmanuel Moutier and Noah Vonley, less so with Mario Hazonia. The question is then, you know, are you going to pay to keep those guys around because they're going to be yeah. on expiring contracts or in restricted free agency. So that's when sort of the rubber meets the road on this rehab idea. But the, the general approach of let's be as bad as we can while we have no hope seems to make a lot of sense. Yeah, I think so too. But you touched on two things there that I struggled with in my piece and that Chris and I, Chris Ryan, who is uh, my editor and wears many hats here at the ringer, like we were debating and I literally, I, literally very many hats, very many hats. He has a, a lot of wonderful hats uh, and figuratively as well. But uh, I wanted to bounce this off of you because you just mentioned Mutier and you just mentioned Vonley. 
And so Mudiay is playing better than he had, obviously, in Denver. And Vonley is playing better than he had in Portland and Charlotte. But I struggled with, are they good stats, bad team guys, or are they actually being re- rehabilitated? Like, have the Knicks and Fisdale? I really like Fisdale a lot, by the way. I think he's smart. I think the approach that he's taking with these guys is the right one. Direct, candid. This is what we're doing all of that makes sense to me, but like, has Fizdale actually fixed them? Or is this just a byproduct of like, of course, Emmanuel Mutier and Vonley would be the perfect guys you'd want to tank? I think, I mean, I'm a little skeptical with Mutier, if, if only because I think a lot of it is predicated on him shooting more effectively than he did when he was in Denver. You know, like, he gets this, uh, the keys to the car and being like a downhill point guard uh, where he can get to the rim. And he's certainly got the physical profile to be able to do that effectively and to be really good at working in the pick and roll, getting into the paint, bouncing off a guy and getting a shot up. He's finishing a lot better and shooting a lot better than he did when he was in Denver. Some of that might be confidence. It absolutely might be, you know, that under Fisdale and, you know, unleashed a little bit, he gets more of an opportunity there and he's responding in kind. Some of it might just be, over the course of 40 games, the coin has, has wound up heads more often than not, where you know, we used to have uh, a much rougher run of it. And I think with, with him, he feels like the kind of guy that I'd rather, I'd rather not be the team that pays to find out if this was for real. Yeah. You know, I think that yeah. that's, that's the question when you, when you look at him going into restricted free agency. The enticing part of a really young point guard with that kind of physical profile and the, the sort of peripheral stats that he's put up this year and the advanced numbers, it, it, there's a lot to like, but I think I, you know, that's, that's the one that would make me a little bit queasier. In terms of Vonley, though, like there, you know, having big guys who can defend multiple positions really considerably well and then also have a little bit more in their game. You know, he, he's shown more of a face-up game. He's shown more of a, an outside shot than he had. I think a lot of it with him was consistency and opportunity, similar to what I was saying with, with Moutier. Like, he, was, you know, he went to Charlotte early and never really cracked in there and with Portland was a team that was sort of ready-made and trying to make a push, didn't have a whole lot of time for a young guy to figure himself out there. And so now that's the kind of guy that I think would be interesting because you need as many versatile defensive pieces as possible. So I think that's one where I might be a little bit more intrigued and what the price tag is to keep him around, or if I was another team looking for a young front court guy to build with, because he, he might not hurt you on defense, which is going to give him more chances to succeed on the other end. Um, but I, it, you're absolutely right to, to, look, to look at these things and say it's a little bit of a mystery box right now. And I think that's sort of uh, you know, what, what makes it a bit of an issue for the Knicks is like, okay, so we've seen what these guys look like now, but in the best version of who we want to be, do these guys even have any kind of role? Yeah, I, I think the price point point is right. Like with Vonley, I you know, how much is it going to cost? Then it becomes interesting. With Mudiay, I probably wouldn't want to be the team that pays him to find out either. But this tanking thing, like with Mudiay moving into the starting lineup and playing better and then like sort of, I don't want to say committing to him, but using him more heavily is interesting because it's come at the expense of Frank Nilakina, who I spoke to for the piece. And Frank seems like a really nice kid. And he was trying to say the right things and he was like, you know, praising Mutier and he was praising Fisdale. But you could see like it was kind of frustrating him because, you know, in November and December, his minutes dipped big time. And on top of that, he was catching DNP CDs. And this is a guy you drafted just two years ago. And I don't quite understand what they're doing with him, because if you are going to like <laughs> like their whole thing that they kept telling me when I was asking about this season was judge us on our player development, which is completely fair. Like they don't want to say tank. And we're going to get into that in a second because it's, I think, caused some aggravation within the team structure. They don't want to say that. They want to talk about player development. That's fine. But you've got a young guy 
who clearly needs to develop. And how are you developing him by gluing his ass to the bench and not playing him? Like before he got hurt in LA, here's some of his minutes logs. 29 minutes, 16 minutes, 14 minutes, DNPCD on Christmas Day, 21 minutes, 16 minutes, 18 minutes. Like that's really tough. Yeah, I mean, it's there. There is a huge sort of difference of opinion on Neil Aquina and what the proper approach is here. Um, I mean, among Knicks fans, among writers, among people from sort of outside of New York, and it settles really on what you need from your guards. And there are those who will say, and I'm one of them, that a guard who can play defense like he can already is worth another look and worth uh, worth as many looks as you can give him, uh, especially because, and I don't have the numbers in front of me right now, but in the, the sort of short sample that he played with Porzingis last year when they were both healthy, the Knicks were actually a pretty significant plus in those minutes. Like, it was a couple hundred minutes and they were, you know, I don't know, plus 50-something or something like that. For a team as bad as they were last year, that's nothing to sneeze at and something worth a longer look because the idea of being able to sort of corral a pick and roll or, you know, fluster an opposing offense with a super long point guard and a seven foot three guy at the rim, that sounds like the modern NBA to me. It feels it feels right. So I think there's a sense that you got to try to figure out everything you can to get get his other his, the other end of the floor up to snuff because what matters in terms of getting you know the Knicks have not have had very few consistently good defenses over the last 15, 20 years, and you know if you want to get back to being a team that stops people, that seems like a pretty good place to start. Yeah. The other school of thought is that this guy can't do anything on offense. And this is the issue. And that's fair. Yes, you need to give him the opportunity to run, but if he's not going to get downhill with the dribble, if, he, if his handle's not tight enough to be able to hold up against pressure, if he's not a good enough shooter from anywhere beyond like 15 feet for that to matter, there's an aspect of this that's sort of like the offensive game is almost like faults without the mystery. He can't really do a whole heck of a lot in certain points, and it's not putting any pressure on the defense, which then makes it harder for you to evaluate other guys because then they're not in a context where their point guard is creating and setting them up. And there are valid points to both sides of it. To me, I'm, you know, I think that there needs to be a, you know, they've, they've needed a defensive overhaul for like a generation now, and I think Neil Aquina seems like somebody who should be part of that. But if the idea is you need to have the optimal sort of set circumstances to, to see, find out what you have in other guys, a point guard who puts no pressure on the defense makes that tough, which is why then you see Fisdale lean more toward Moutier, more toward Trey Burke, and guys that are at least decisive off the dribble. Yeah, you'd think Fizz would be the perfect guy to, to do the defensive overhaul thing too, because he, you know, he had some really good, Obviously, he had better players in Miami when he was assistant there, but he had he was part of really good defenses there. He was part of really good defenses in Memphis. He did say when we were asking him about that, like that he tried to put in some what he described as complicated defensive concepts, and that this young team that is just like learning how to play with each other and learning who like what each other's tendencies are, it was just too much for them. So he's gone the other way now and tried to simplify everything and then like I guess build from there so I suppose that'll take some time but offensively Nilakina uh, he returned after that injury the ankle injury that he had against the Lakers played 28 minutes against the 76ers 76ers pulled out a big win over the juggernaut Knicks three point win over the juggernaut Knicks uh, Nilakina played 28 minutes and to your point about his offense he went four for 11 he shot one three and he missed it he only got to the line twice missed both of those I mean he doesn't look confident right now offensively, so I could understand why, you know, if you're Fizdale, you go, well, why do we even bother? He's only scored in double digits. I'm looking at his game log now once in the last month. I mean, it's tough. It's a struggle for him. But so all of this kind of goes into the whole tanking fold. 
And you and I, and a lot of other people, I think from an academic standpoint, think it makes sense. There are people in the Knicks who play for the Knicks who do not like it. Right. One of them might be Kristaps Porzingis. There have been reports about how he might want to come back, and the Knicks are like, man, maybe you don't need to come back right now. Uh, where are you on Kristaps uh, Porzingis and whether or not he should return? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it makes all the sense in the world to keep him on ice as long as possible. You know, yeah, you're not playing for anything uh, of note this year, clearly, and the more losses you get, the better your chances of, of drawing a high draft pick, et cetera, et cetera. You know, yeah, we get the, you know, what you call the academic case for it. Um, I'm a little less concerned, you know, there was a report, uh, I think Stefan Bondi out of the New York Daily News had the report that, you know, it's not just a fait accompli that, that uh, Porzingis is going to get the full-fledged max offer of his rookie extension, and they he'll sign it right away because he has some cons- some questions about the organization. Frankly, who wouldn't? And you know that, that every you know things could get a little bit more uh, icky and messy with that situation than you might have expected. Because generally speaking, if a guy gets a max offer off of his rookie deal, he's just signing it, saying thank you very much, and we'll figure out the drama in two years. I expect that to happen more than I would expect uh, you know this to become some. Sort of protracted issue with Porzingis saying, you know, I'm only going to sign it if you solve these problems three or something like that. I don't, I don't think that's really going to be the issue here. But the other sort of big piece of this is the Knicks are representing and operating as if they're a team that's going to try to go big game hunting and free agency. And if you hope to do that, if you hope to land a Kevin Durant, if you hope to land a Kyrie Irving, if you hope to land one of these other sort of superstar kind of players, you know, those guys are going to want to know what they're coming in to, to play with and who they're going to be able to line up with. So the idea of, of getting Porzingis back on the court for at least some sort of a stretch run, you know, an opportunity to see that, you know, yeah, he, he can get back on the court, he can get back up and down, he looks like the same sort of three-point shooting, shot-blocking, uh, you know, mythical beast that we saw before. I think that might be an important thing from a sales perspective in that situation, but if you're asking me, I think that discretion's got to be the better part of Valor there. He's, he's what's going to matter for the next half decade. You pay him as much as you can, as soon as you can, and then you, know, you hope that everybody else sort of takes the long view too. Yeah, you want to make sure that he's healthy. You want to make sure that the full tank uh, is completed. The point that you make about, you know, from a sales perspective, seeing him get out there is important. And I would go one step further with that as well. You want to keep him happy too, right? You want to, like, if he yeah. wants to play and you want to create an environment that's a positive environment that you can sell to other players, potential free agents, that is equally important. If he's pissed off and the environment is still dysfunctional as it's been with the Knicks for a very long time, that's less attractive to potential free agents. And it's not just Chris Stapps. Like with the Knicks, these things have like a way of leaking out, sometimes involuntarily. And sometimes they're just like on full public display. Like when when they were out in LA, Hardaway was flat out talking about, I don't like this, right? I like my teammates. I like my coach. I don't like that we're, you know, he, he didn't even want to use the word tank. He just, he just was like, this doesn't feel good. I don't like the, the way that this goes. I understand that the fans, it might make sense to them. But then he did the whole, like, have they ever played basketball a bit? Because if they were in my shoes, they wouldn't like it either. And neither does, by the way, Ennis Cantor, who has been goddamn hilarious all season long, but he got really pissed off, as you know, about uh, Luke Cornett being in the starting lineup over him. Luke Cornett, previously of the G League, had a meeting with the front office. Scott Perry told him, according to Ennis, that he is a very, very good player. And Cantor then said, you know, he had all these plans to make the All-Star game this year, (laughs) which was goddamn amazing. And then my favorite part was, If we're winning, this is about him coming off the bench. If we're winning, it's good. But if we're losing, it's a problem. If this adjustment is going to get us a win, cool. But if not, there's going to be a problem. Despite the fact that Cantor is very much about Cantor, 
Can you see his side? Can you see Hardaway's side? I mean, I get if, if you're those guys and you're veterans, you want to win. Do they have a point? Yeah, I mean, totally. I, th- I think from from their perspective, yeah, like, you know, who would want to go to work and get smashed every day? Like that's that's a bummer. <laughs> that is that's not a fun way to spend a uh, you know what's, what's becoming an increasingly cold winter in New York. Like you don't want to have to go and just get you know kind of crushed and feel like you've got no hope at competing on a real level. I mean, that said, Ennis Cantor contributes to some of that because the Knicks awful defense that's second worst in the NBA performs that way in large part or to some degree because Ennis Cantor can't play defense. Um, not that they've been world beaters with Luke Cornett at the five, but like this is, you know, there's a reason why Ennis Cantor isn't an all-star, you know, and it's that. It's not the rebounding and it's not the scoring. It's that. I would also um, submit to you that it could be that he ate seven cheeseburgers and fries on his quote cheat day and then had to call out sick the next day. I think like if you want to be an all-star, you might want to be on the court, but I did enjoy the video. Gons, who among us, who among us has not <laughs> on a cheat day or a, just a random Tuesday right. decided this is the time for, I guess maybe not you, you, know, you, you, you keep it tight, but like, I mean, you know, some of the rest of us, we have, we have an issue with that. I want you to do that and then call Varier and be like, yeah, man, can't blog today. Seven burgers really put me under. Well, you know what the bummer is? Like, I feel, I mean, maybe not seven, but like, I mean, I've, I've, I've probably blogged through a few burgers in the past. It, 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 listen, there's a, an expectation of professionalism among us blog types. You know, that's <laughs> what we've got to make sure we get done. But I think, and Hardaway too, you know, Hardaway is miscast as a number one scoring guy right now. He's a guy that should be a complimentary option. You know, um, Bill Simmons continues to talk about the idea that if you had him on a team like, I don't know, like Dallas or some other situation where he's a number two, number three kind of guy as opposed to the top guy, the efficiency would be better or Utah or something like that. But like all these guys are miscast because this team is what it is. This team is a team to get through this season, sort of see what these pieces might wind up being beyond that. And then like there's, there is no long-term plan for this team. So yeah, if you're a guy who wants to know where my next paycheck is coming from, where, you know, what the sort of next arc of my career is going to be. Yeah. You want no part of this uh, except for the part that allows you to stack numbers make an all-star appearance, do whatever you need to do to try to burnish your resume. And I think it's hard to do when you're on a, you know, 10 and 33 team or whatever. Last next thing for you, uh, are you sure you don't want to talk about this for another hour? I was going to say, we, we've already gone way longer on the Knicks than I anticipated. I had like 40 things I wanted to touch on with you. We did one. It's the Knicks. But I have to ask this because he was the December rookie of the month. I mean, where are you on Kevin Knox? Are you a believer? Uh, I'm, I'm optimistic. I think, you know, the, the thing that, that people loved in summer league was the idea that he was a guy who was going to get downhill. He was going to catch the ball and make quick decisions and put pressure on the rim and, you know, drive, you know, they have, we haven't had a whole lot of slashers and drivers on the Knicks in the last few years who have, you know, really given you reason to get excited. And if the outside shot comes along with that, I mean, the overall shooting percentages are not great, but he's been willing to fire and hitting a little bit, a little bit better from beyond the arc too. That plus the rebounding at the, that sort of combo forward spot. I like the idea of him as a, a sort of a small ball four on a team that has Chris Stapps in the middle or, you know, another maybe all-star caliber three, four guy that may come from the West Coast when given all of the money in the world this summer. Um, I, think they, I think he makes some sense there, and uh, that is a bright spot. You know, we talk about some of the other developmental stumbling blocks. I think the, uh, the opportunities he's getting afforded and what he's doing with them are pretty exciting. I'm, I'm rooting for him. He seems like a nice kid. He's a big body. He's got a lot going for him. The upside is there. Not a lot of bright spots in New York right now. He might, he's pretty much it. I hope it works out. I had a whole bunch of other things that I wanted to get to you on because you wrote stuff about the Timberwolves youth movement and you wrote about Kyle Kuzma being a score first guy. And, you know, they just lost at home without LeBron to the friggin' Cavaliers. But 
We can't because you got to go because you've got a million things to write. Anything you want to plug before you go? Well, I think the first thing I want to do is say, like, maybe that's a ringer curse type situation. That might be my first uh, that I write about Kuzma, and then immediately the, the Lakers go in the tank. So yeah. it's nice to be welcomed aboard like that. Um, yeah, I've got something coming up on uh, you know a team that I think I know is really close to your heart, one that you love very much, the Boston Celtics. Yeah, that'll be coming up because it's interesting times in Boston, man. That was a weekend to forget for them. So I've got something on them coming up later today, and uh, you know there'll be more for me every day over at theRinger.com. Speaking of the ringer curse, Danny just wrote about Kyrie, and then immediately re- they go in the tank and. Kyrie Kyrie starts popping off. We were, I was talking to House about it before you came on the show, and uh, I just want to reiterate, I am not delighting in, in their misery. This is not a schadenfreude situation. Playing it straight. That's re- and you know what? Again, we talked about the professionalism of blogging through burgers. You, <laughs> this is another way that you are showing that. Dan Devine, you're the best, homie. Thanks for doing it. Thanks, Gons. All right, that was Dan Devine. We always love when he joins the show. Before we go to Zach Cram, I want to bring up our NBA Watch of the Night. Hornets at Spurs tonight, Isaac Lee. Unlike Kawhi Leonard, I believe that Tony Parker's return will be much more positive. Absolutely. I'm excited about this. I think that Spurs fans, I know Shea's excited about it. Should be a good game. It's on NBA TV. And and I, I just want to mention this again because Dan Devine has pointed it out about a million times both on Slack and Twitter. December... I wrote a piece for the ringer.com about how bad the Spurs are playing, how they didn't look like the Spurs. There was a reason for it because they all talked about how bad they looked. Patty Mills was like, we don't have Tony Parker anymore. We don't have Manuel anymore. Who's the leader around here? It was like end of days. Since then, they're killing it. Listen, the ringer blessings. It's real. And since then, they've been on a tear. Uh, They're murdering everybody. And uh, Godspeed to DeMar, to Patty Mills, to LaMarcus, to Pop to all of the Spurs and Tony Parker will get a, a probably a hero's welcome tonight. And then I expect that the Hornets will lose and everybody will be uh, quite excited. So check that out on NBA TV. And remember gang, if you want to watch every NBA game, be sure to subscribe to NBA league pass on NBA.com, Amazon, or your local cable or satellite provider. And now let's bring in Kramer. All right, joining me on the other line, I'm super excited about this for the first time ever. And that, you know what? That's my fault. I'm going to take the hit on that one. First time ever, staff writer in Chicago, just moved out there. Zach Cram joins us on the program. What's up, Kramer? Hello. I'm excited for my first heat check. Uh, So you do a Ringer MLB show all the time. You guys are on hiatus, but when it comes back, you want to check that out. You do binge mode, all kinds of stuff. First ever heat check. And and I'll I'll tell you what, for your first ever appearance, this is a fire story you wrote. You came up with a story where you did player comps for all of the lottery picks using very cram methodology that I like stared at for a while. And you had a piece in there where you were like, if math wasn't your thing, I'm pretty sure you wrote that for me because my eyes glazed <laughs> over. I have no idea how you can't, there was charts and graphs. I think there's a graphing calculator used. Uh, I'm always curious about your methodology. Can you give us the abridged version on how you came up with this piece? Yeah, so basically I collected stats for every rookie who qualified for the minutes per game leaderboard since 2000 and looked at them through a variety of statistics. There were the basic per game stats, points, rebounds, steals, blocks, assists, and then sort of trying to encompass their playing style. So how often they take three pointers, how often they get to the free throw line, their usage rate and their true shooting percentage, trying to get basically a wide angle lens view of each rookie. And I was able to compare each 
rookie of this year's class to the previous rookies and kind of develop a similarity score. So uh, I think the least similar pairing for any rookie this year is Trey Young, who his similarity score to Omer Ashik was the worst in the entire group. And that kind of makes sense. It's (laughs) kind of hard to think of two more dissimilar players. But then what we were looking for is who was similar. So that was helpful because it, in a lot of cases, confirms some pre-draft notions like Carl Anthony Towns showed up as the top comp for DeAndre Ayton, which is good for, you know, people like Kevin O'Connor, who said before the draft, he reminds me of Carl Anthony Towns. Well, halfway through his first rookie year, he's playing like him. Yeah. And it was helpful for that and helpful for some surprises. So we're going to go through a lot of these. We're not going to do them all. But as you mentioned with DeAndre Ayton, I thought his comps were like about what I'd expect, even maybe better than I'd expect. There were other players who we'll get to because I don't want to give away the ghost here where I was blown away by some of the comps. So let's go through these. Let's start with DeAndre Ayton. The top five comps were Carl Anthony Towns, uh, Nikola Jokic, John Collins, Brooke Lopez, Al Horford. If you're a Suns fan, that's great. Yeah, I think uh, I found that besides John Collins, who's obviously still on his rookie contract, the other four all made it you know, at least $100 million in their careers, it shows Aiton is basically going to be what we expect. He's been a tremendous offensive force. I think the presence of Towns and Jokic at the top of his list also maybe reinforces the notion that he needs to improve his defense a lot. But yeah. I think Luka's getting all of the rookie attention, and rightly so, but it's not like Aiton's a bad number one overall pick. No, I, I think he's been fine. I think defensively, there's definitely... Uh... A lot of room for improvement there. There's also been moments in games where he's been knocked for maybe uh, effort. Like how much, like, is he really playing hard late in games when maybe the score's gotten away from them a little bit? He got knocked for that when they played the Sixers uh, in November in Philly. Uh, but I like him on the whole. The Marvin Bagley one is is 1,000% how you ended up on this show because I immediately, <laughs> I saw this and I immediately took to uh, Ringer Slack and fired up a Riley McAtee mention, and he was not at all thrilled with this. Tell the people who the number one Marvin Bagley comp was. Nanad Kristich, and if you're not excited <laughs> about Nanad Kristich as the number two overall pick, I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> the whole time I was just thinking about Isaac singing the Baffling Kings to Bagley over Luca. This was so good. Now, there's some better, there's some better comps further on down. Jokic came in as his third best comp. Yao Ming came in as his fourth best comp, and John Collins as his fifth best comp. So if you're the King, a Kings fan, you'd go, all right, it could be worse. But the first one just made me fall off my chair laughing. Yeah, and I think Bagley is a good reminder that, first of all, we're comparing these rookies who have only played half a season to overall rookie seasons for everyone else. So it certainly might change at the end of the year. And with Bagley especially, he's been hurt for so long. He was playing somewhat inconsistently before then. So I'm not sure if this is as predictive as, say, DeAndre Ayton's might be because there's just so much of a larger sample there. All right, so Luca is the one that I think everybody's going to want to talk about here. And this is the one that blew me away when I looked at all of his comps, because I didn't expect this. Like when I, when I saw DeAndre Ayton's, I was like, that's better than I probably anticipated. The Suns fans are going to be happy with this. I don't know that you made Mavs fans feel good with the comps that came up on this one. <laughs> Let's go through them one by one. The number one comp, because five is hilarious. The number one comp is uh, Tyreek Evans, who, you know, in his rookie season, he was really good, but I don't think for a variety of reasons, both situational fit and also his health, probably hasn't had the career that either Tyreek Evans or Tyreek Evans fans probably would have expected or wanted. 
Yeah, that's true. Uh, Tyreek, uh, I tweeted over the weekend about Luca coming close to averaging 20 points, five rebounds, and five assists as a rookie. And a bunch of Kings fans were like, oh, so I guess he might be good as good as Tyreek Evans one day because Evans is one of five people who has ever done that. It's Tyreek, Luca, LeBron, Oscar Robertson, and Michael Jordan. Um, I think... The interesting thing about Luca and Tyreek specifically is that he had the lowest similarity score of anybody's top comp. What Luca is doing is just so extraordinary from anyone we have ever seen before, how he's combining usage rate and true shooting percentage, how he's getting to the free throw line and also shooting a lot of threes. So even though Evans is his number one comp, the similarity score there actually wasn't that high. It's just that nobody has ever come close to doing exactly what Luca has done this year. Luca is singular, uh, so I think that'll make people feel better about it. Brandon Roy came in at number two, obviously a good player, but uh, fell by injury. Number three was Steve Francis, who started out his career hot and then completely fell off. Four is fantastic if you're a Mavs fan and a Luka fan and you want to believe that he could become Damian Lillard. That one was great. Five, you tell the people five because this is the one that will make Mavs fans want to pull out their hair if they have any. You know what? It's Carmelo Anthony and Carmelo Anthony... If Luca has Carmelo Anthony's career, that's a Hall of Fame career. Maybe that's not what Mavs fans think right now when they think Luca will win MVP every year, but I think that's a pretty good outcome for someone who's still a rookie. And I think Luca's passing numbers are already better than Melo's ever were. So he definitely has some wiggle room there. He is a Hall. Look, you're right. Carmelo is a Hall of Famer. But when you say that like Mavs fans would take that, would they? Because like you have to still take like if you're going to take Carmelo's career. Yeah, you get the Hall of Fame at the end, but you got to take all the bullshit that went with it, which includes a lot of not winning. I'm excited for Hoodie Luca. <laughs> I almost coughed up a lung. I'm sick. I'm getting over a sickness. So uh, thank you for almost killing me on the Heat Check podcast. If I die, it's yours. Uh, I think like I think if you're Luca, the, the whole thing about um, the comps not and the similarity scores being hard because he's been so good are right because look we're look look at the All Star voting. I mean, he's at the very tippy top of the all-star voting for a reason. And he would be one of what it's just like, what you put it in Slack. Was it just uh, in this century? It would just be, he'd be the just Blake Griffin and Yao Ming who would make the all-star game as rookies, right? Yeah, he'd be, I think, the first non-big man to make it since Grant Hill like 25 years ago. It's incredible. And speaking of NBA stars and teams, it's time for NBA All-Star voting in this year's actually easy. This is seamless. I'm just dropping it in here. It's actually easier than ever for fans to vote because you can vote just by searching on Google. Just search for your favorite player or team and you can vote right in the search bar. You can also search on Google to stay up to date with live scores and view upcoming schedules. The All-Star game is February 17th and voting runs until January 21st. Fans can vote for 10 players a day. Cram, I encourage you to go vote on Google. That was seamless. Thank you very much. I host a podcast for a living. They pay me for this. Um, <laughs> let's go through some more of these comps. Here's a guy who I love personally. I love watching him play. I think that he could end up being, uh, when all is said and done, the best of the rookies. Jaron Jackson Jr., his number one comp was Jason Tatum. Kristaps Porzingis came in at two. Shane Battier at three. Meta World Peace at four. And Victor Oladipo at five. What I see there is how I think about Jaron Jackson. Those are five really different players who do a lot of different things. And that's kind of Jaron Jackson. He's so versatile. Yeah, I came to the same conclusion. I was a bit surprised when Tatum came up as number one, but I didn't put a factor like height or position as one of the inputs. And I was kind of glad that it came out with a surprise like this, because if you look at their numbers, 
Tatum's rookie year and Jackson this year, their per game numbers are almost identical. They shoot the same number of threes. They get to the line at the same rate. And he's Jaron Jackson is doing all of that while also being one of the best at-rim defenders in the league. I think that's exactly right. It speaks to his multi-positionality. It speaks to his sort of three and D presence, but as yeah. a center. And I think that's really encouraging for Grizzlies. Fans. He can do so many things on the court. Like I, I, I've mentioned this on Heat Check before. I've watched an inordinate number of Grizzlies games, and and I want to once more reaffirm that this is the official podcast of the the Memphis Grizzlies. It's not the mismatch and, and that guy that hosted <laughs> on Tuesdays. It's right here at Heat Check for all your Grizzlies talk. But I've watched an inordinate amount of Grizzlies games this year, and every game he does, even when he has an off game or he's in foul trouble, which he frequently is, and that's something he definitely needs to work on. Every game he does something where I'm like, wow, somebody that size shouldn't be able to like launch a step back three like that. Or, oh man, he really got to the rim super quick and closed the distance on uh, the guy he was defending or the way he slid over. And, uh, you know, his passing is better than I anticipated. And he's just, I'm super excited for Jaron Jackson. Yeah. And I think the most valuable part of this exercise for me wasn't necessarily pinpointing each specific player as, oh, he's going to have this comp's career because everyone's different. But when someone elicited a sort of type of player as their comps, I think that made me take notice. Jaron Jackson was one of them. I think Colin Sexton, who we might get to in a, in a minute, is another player where it wasn't necessarily the individual players themselves, but the kind of player actually says a lot, uh, a lot more about what the rookies have done thus far. Uh, you mentioned this guy at the top of this particular segment, Trey Young. His comps were interesting too. They were kind of they were kind of all over the place. Number one was Brandon Jennings. Got a Damian Lillard in there. That's great. Three was Johnny Flynn, which is like red flags and sirens going off and like Hawks fans running for the exits screaming. Dennis Smith Jr. came in at four and Kemba Walker at five. Those are a little bit better. Uh, where are you on Trey Young? Yeah, I think with Young, the boomer bust potential is still there. He's having the worst shooting season of all time for a rookie who shot this much. So if he solves that problem, he could, you know, be an all-star with the way the game is trending. Someone like Kemba Walker was a 30% three-point uh, three shooter as a rookie. He obviously improved his shot. He improved his all-around game, and now he's an all-star. But someone like Brandon Jennings or Johnny Flynn or, you know, Dennis Smith Jr. maybe going along that path was not able to make those adjustments and sort of flamed out. And I think that's where this, you know, tells you maybe what we expected coming into the draft with Young. What we didn't expect was him to shoot this poorly. I think heading into the draft, it, you expected him to be shooting this poorly from three. You know, maybe, maybe the Hawks wouldn't have traded him for Luka. But yeah, uh, <laughs> it, he has boomer bust potential he's always had. And this just confirms that notion. I thought he was going to be good stats, bad team guy. And the shooting slump, is definitely concerning. Like I'm bad with you. stats, bad team. Bad stats, bad team is less encouraging than good stats, bad team. Uh, the next guy on your list is kind of like no stats, bad team is Mo Bamba. I really like Mo a lot as a human. I liked him a lot coming out of the draft. I still think he can go, be a good player. The problem uh, is twofold here. One, he's not getting a lot of run in Orlando. Two, he's now recently injured. But two A would be Nikola Vucevic has kind of blocked his path. Uh, because Nikola Vucevic has been killing it, and he's probably a really good trade candidate for them. At present, his top five comps are, and this isn't good, Marquise Chris, then you've got Danny Granger, who was good until he got hurt, Okor, Caspi, and then Markeith, not Marcus Morris. As you mentioned, he's sort of the lost rookie in this group. Mm -hmm. And 
I'd be really curious to rerun this exercise once we get to the end of the season for Bamba, especially if Vucevic is traded and yeah. he does get more minutes. I mentioned in my piece with Kevin Knox, who had like a terrible first month. It was marred by injury. He wasn't playing that much. And then he had a great second month, but that meant his overall comps still didn't look that great just because that first month played a disproportionate impact. So if these guys get more run and they can continue to improve, maybe they'll look better at the end of the season or the converse is, you know, if they're used to playing 30 game college seasons or 30 game high school seasons, and now they're playing over 82 full season, uh, full games, then maybe they'll get worse numbers in the second half and look even worse but with the comps at the end of the season. Yeah, I'm, I'm rooting for Mo. I wrote a long piece about him uh, last year, and I think he's a good kid. I think he's a smart kid and more minutes. I mean, look, it's hard for you to look good if you're not on the floor and not getting minutes, which is the same thing that's happening with your next guy here, Wendell Carter Jr. As you mentioned, Jim Boylan has messed with his minutes since becoming the head coach, and he said, well, sometimes you learn by setting two. Yeah, okay. Uh, like this whole hard-ass like drill sergeant routine, you're the Bulls. You might want to get these young guys some run because you could potentially have a really nice young core, but you're not going to develop them in the same way that I mentioned earlier on in the program when Dan Devine was on. Like the Knicks want to be this, be judged on their player development. Well, that requires you to actually develop your players. At present, Wendell Carter Jr.'s comps look pretty good to start. Nikola Jokic right off the top. Then it's Darius Miles, which was interesting. Miles Turner, Josh Childress, and uh, Luis Scola. Yeah, to your point about playing time, if you look at the Bulls roster, I think Markinen and Wendell Carter would seem like the ideal yeah. big man pairing. You have Markinen to stretch the floor, maybe isn't as good at defense, but then you have Carter to anchor the defense at the five and you know have a high-low game. So that doesn't make much sense. I think Carter's comps speak to that sort of potential that he ends up as a tweener, kind of like you know Darius Miles did. But who knows, Darius Miles today might be a small ball five. So I'm not sure if... That's as bad uh, an indictment as it would have seemed just five years ago. Yeah, I like that you put that in there because I think that was a really astute and interesting point that Miles might have been a small ball five, uh, you know, had he been playing 20 years later. Colin Sexton is the next one. My eyeballs almost popped out of my head. You started this one with yikes for his top five comps, which I thought was exactly right when I read them. Number one was Marshawn, not Dylan Brooks. Two was Chucky Atkins. Three was Jason Richardson. Four was Adam Morrison. And five was Richard Hamilton. Yikes is right. This was the most worrying set for me. And not because all those players are bad. Jason Richardson, Richard Hamilton obviously had great careers. Yeah. But the fact that Colin Sexton is a point guard and doesn't have any point guards in his top five is is not reassuring for Cavs fans who might just see his low assist numbers because this speaks to his all-around game. The fact that his usage rate is so high while his assist rate is so low. The fact that I think it's either he or Knox, they've been flip-flopping back and forth, has the lowest true shooting percentage in this class. One of the factors that went into these comps is defense sort of quantified by steals and blocks, but that's not a huge part of these rankings. And the fact that Sexton has also graded out as a pretty abysmal defender thus far is concerning even on top of this. So, you know, again, he's a rookie, he's young, he's still learning the intricacies of an NBA offense, but he doesn't even have any point guards on his list. And that's a concern. 
Yeah, I would be uh, super worried if I were Cavs fans. Although I like, I think like I'm not sure how much you could possibly reasonably expect Colin Sexton to do. So that you know, if these comps come out and they don't look great, I, if I were a Cavs fan, I'd be like, yeah. I mean, I probably didn't have that high of hopes for him, but it, this is much worse than anticipated. Kevin Knox is an interesting case study, as you mentioned. Uh, start of the season, not good for him. Wasn't getting any run. December, great for him. Got a lot of run. Eastern Conference Rookie of the Month. Top five comps start with Knicks fans meet your new J.R. Smith. Amazing. I was so happy that that stayed. (laughs) But if you look at just his numbers since December 1st, his top comp actually makes a lot more stylistic sense. It's Kyle Kuzma. And Mm, you can see a lot of similarities between those two players, not just because their initials are both KK, but because they actually play in a similar way. They have similar strengths. And they both sort of could adapt into the same role in a modern NBA offense. Yeah, I think the size, they, they're both like pretty big guys. The way that they could potentially be deployed if, if they keep using Knox this way makes a lot of sense. This is why we, we're going to have you on in perpetuity now. You're going to be in the regular rotation because <laughs> I hadn't gone as deep as their initials are the same. That's the kind of like in-depth, super uh, bore down analysis that you're going to get from a Zach Cram. I should have made that one of my factors. That should have, from now on, you've got to incorporate names and initials. Uh, I'm not going to do all of these. We're just going to skip to uh, a couple more here. Let's do, uh, for Isaac's sake, SGA. Top five comps came in as Wally Zerbiak, Eric Bledsoe, Malcolm Brogdon, Vontigo Cummings, and Amon Shumpert. The last two aside, the first three are pretty good. Yeah, and uh, I think when I started this exercise about like two weeks before the piece ran, I think instead of Cummings and Shumpert at four and five, it was like Danny Granger and Rudy Gay or something. So I wrote this long glowing blurb about that and then had to sort of change it a bit once he slumped. But I think sort of like with Jackson, this does speak to uh, SGA's you know, multi-positionality potential because Zerbiak and Bledsoe and Brogdon all succeed in very different ways, but all those paths are still pretty open to someone who's as dynamic an athlete and as impressive a rookie as SGA has been thus far. So I think this is, you know, even though Justin Verrier, when he was editing this piece, commented who on Vontigo Cummings, I think it's (laughs) an encouraging list overall. Uh, Isaac, as a Clippers fan, uh, as we've demonstrated here on Heat Check many times before, how do you feel about these comps? First of all, I also said who when I read Vontigo Cummings because I don't know who that is. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> but number two, Eric Bledsoe stands out to me because he was obviously drafted by the Clippers and had a pretty good, pretty solid rookie season and developed into uh, a Clippers fan favorite. And Shea Gildas-Alexander, my large Canadian son, has the uh, potential to become a fan favorite if he sticks around long enough, which we hope he does. So you're okay with this? Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty okay with this. I think SGA has more potential to jump these comps. Obviously, it's his rookie season. This is the worst he's ever going to be. And um, it's tough to project, as you guys mentioned earlier, from the rookie season to the comps career. So I'm optimistic that SGA will surpass all of these guys on the list. I like an optimistic Clippers fan. That's good about you. Um, All right, last one for you. And I'm going to just do this in the interest of fairness because when I brought this to uh, Ringer Slack to make fun of Riley, Riley immediately clapped back with, well, why don't you get us some Markel Fultz comps then? And you did because you're Zach Graham that didn't appear in this piece. Why don't you run through some poor Markel Fultz comps? So the caveat with Fultz is that even if you combine his first two seasons thus far, he still hasn't played enough minutes to reach the qualification threshold I set for everyone else. Awesome. But, you know, that's okay. So take this all with some huge grains of salt. I generated Fultz's top 10 comps, and they are as follows. Okay. Anthony Carter, 
Terrence Williams, Junior Harrington, Fontigo Cummings, <laughs> Fontigo. Tyler Ulis, Nate Wolters, Raul Lopez, Jameer Nelson, Alexi Shved, and Isaiah Whitehead. I got very <laughs> excited about Alexi Shved because I'm an Alexi Shved stan from way back from when they were tanking. And also, if I could just pick out one, Jameer Nelson. That Jameer gives Nelson, me hope. Yeah. That gives me hope. Tyler Ulis and Nate Wolters as sort of the backup point guard boilerplate there. I also say who to some of these names. So it's not great, but again, grains of salt. I think Fultz obviously is in a, a special situation as compared to basically every other rookie we've seen. So I'm glad we did this in the interest of fairness, but you know, I, I even trust Bagley's comps a lot more than his. I think anytime you can trade up and trade away another first round pick to get the next Montego Cummings, you got to do it. I think this vindicates Brian Colangelo. He's out there somewhere shaking his fist. He knew he was right. Uh, Zach Cram, go and read his piece on TheRinger.com. It's really excellent. You outdid yourself per usual. We're going to have you back soon. Thanks for doing this, Kramer. Thank you so much. Have a good one. All right, that was Zach Cram. I want to thank Zach Cram. I want to thank Joe House. I want to thank Dan Devine. And of course, our producer back in the fold, Isaac Lee. I want to thank all of you for listening to Heat Check. Please rate and review us on Apple and be sure to listen to The Mismatch on Tuesday, Group Chat on Thursday, Corner 3 on Friday. Isaac and I will be back next Monday. Thanks for listening, gang. Bye.